This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 228. So being today is Sunday, February 27th, 2022, as usual, I'm covering the latest weekly news and rumors roundup from the big four rumor sites of Canon rumors, Nikon rumors, Fuji rumors, and Sony Alpha rumors. And there has been a lot of exciting news that came out this past week. So let's head on over to Canon Rumors and see what they have for us. Let's do this. First up, Canon R3 review balanced against R5, R5C, and 1DX Mark III. Canon Caminastic updated its comprehensive Canon EOS R3 review geared to help R5 and 1DX Mark III shooters make upgrade decisions. Recently added are video snippets and comparisons to the new Sony and Nikon flagships, as well as the R5C. There are a lot of ifs and buts, but the upshots, should 1DX Mark III shooters upgrade? In short, yes, if you think 30 frames per second, more megapixels, and significantly improved ergonomics matter enough to cover the greater than $1,000 difference between a new R3 and a used R1DX Mark III. Should I upgrade if I own the R5? Probably not, but maybe. The extra $3,000 would buy you a camera with about half the resolution. The R3 does beat the R5 significantly in super low-light circumstances. Its autofocus capabilities are better, but not demonstrably in most situations. R3 World Real World Review When the Canon CEO, Fuji Maidahari, was asked what worried him most in an interview several years ago, he said Canon was too slow to bring products to market, and the market was expecting things to move faster and faster. He was going to light a fire under the product managers, and Canon was going to have a comprehensive constellation of products put out much more quickly that would best all competition. Everything he said mostly came to pass, except the part of it being done quickly. But here we are at the end of that moonshot, staring at an R3. We spent all of December shooting this little monster, notching up about 30,000 exposures under sometimes trying conditions, including rain, extreme cold, and long swaths of time at the in-laws. We had the opportunity to compare that experience to varying degrees with the Sony A1, the Nikon Z9, and the Canon R5C in the six weeks since. The camera is in many ways the best Canon has ever produced. Aside from limited resolution relative to the competition, it delivers images that other cameras often can't acquire. Below is a picture of the EOS R3 feeding on the carcass of the older 1DX series taken by an R3. This article aims to arm existing Canon shooters with the right information to decide if the R3 is a useful upgrade. We can winnow out a few R5 shooters immediately for lack of 8K shooting. The R3's resolution is just too poor to manage 8K video. 
of the flagship cameras compared in this review from Sony, Nikon, and Canon semi-flagship R3 and R5 reviewed here and R5C, only the R3 lacks this capability. Look elsewhere. For most video needs, though, things are a bit more complicated, so we set out some direct comparisons below in the video section. Another factor that likely won't make a difference for most people, build quality. All of these cameras accepted abuse without incident, and we didn't coddle the camera. Why did you buy it? Reliable 30 frames per second speed, better high ISO image quality, fast stack sensor for largely eliminating most shutter roll, eye control for moving the autofocus point with your viewfinder pupil, low light autofocus down to minus 7.5 EV with caveats, Flash works with electronic shutter, unlike previous models. Flippy screen included, despite their odd association among pros with amateurish, with amateurishness. In-body image stabilization, best ergonomics of any Canon camera to date, while shedding weight and size, and a better battery. Why you wouldn't buy it? Resolution is poor relative to other mirrorless offerings, including, including Canon's own R5. Related to the above, if you need 8K video shooting, you're out of luck. Users married to the screen touch and drag method of autofocus point control will find it retired in the R3, replaced by two probably better ones. Size is still much larger than an R5 class body, despite being over 300 grams heavier, or less than 300 grams heavier. Uh, upshot regarding primary specs and performance, low-light performance is excellent in part due to actual photographic dynamic range sensor improvement and also likely some software cooking. The images coming out of the R3 look to be roughly two-thirds to a full stop better than the R5 in image quality at the highest ISO native to the R5, which is 25,000. This is unexpectedly good, especially coming from Canon's first stack sensor, which typically would sacrifice dynamic range for faster readout. This comparison was done by taking an image of the same object in light that was two stops below ideal versus the settings and comparing a downsampled version of the R5 photo to allow that camera superior resolution to help compensate. This is likely the most important unsung benefit that the R3 camera can uniquely provide. The picture below was shot at 50,000 ISO in the gloaming of a winter's evening and then cropped the R5 can do this if it has about a stop more light. Handling is far better than the 1 or 5 series. Size, weight, and button precisions, uh, positions are improved and simplified, and it's enough to make a difference. There are some oddities inherited from the 1 series that were clearly brought over to make the 1DX3 and the grease feel more at home, such as the top left duo of buttons, which is essentially the old way of handling what nowadays is done more elegantly and completely with the manual or the MFN button. But there is a busload of 60-year-old photographers who would go apologetic at the notion one is a replacement for the other. The dynamic range is fantastic, better than any Canon camera, and on par with the competing Sony A1, and slightly better than the new Nikon Z9. This is a great achievement given the introduction of the stack sensor, which in some ways works against dynamic range. The excellent site, photo, uh, photons2photos.net, is a wonderful source for, of independent measurement information and also shows that the R3 noise performance benefits from some algorithmic cooking. 
something common today among professional bodies. The improvement shown over the R5 and A1 at ISO 1200 and above appears to be part of the look Canon bakes into flagship camera software rather than a third native ISO. The viewfinder turns on more quickly than other Canon mirrorless cameras. Rolling shutter is less of an issue, especially for stills. The stack sensor is doing its job. Where ISO 25600 was previously the point at which I stopped, auto ISO from creeping further up on the R5, the R3 takes usable shots at 51,200. There really is almost a stop of better low-light performance. 30 frames per second starts to head down the slope of diminishing returns, but it's still nice to have. We have that, or we found that we preferred leaving it on the fastest frame rate because the additional frames provided some important shots despite the nightly horrors introduced in culling. The sensor is disappointing in resolution, but image resolves better than the 24 megapixel would suggest. Part of this is an average improvement in autofocus, and part of it is that this R3 contains the same file cooking present in the 1 series, which bakes in some noise reduction and very selective sharpening. Some reviewers indicated the R3 files seemed about as detailed as the 30 megapixel 5DX Mark IV files, and that feels about right. Where it falls short with some frequency is disallowing the relatively extreme cropping we could get away with on R5 50 megapixel files. For reach limited photographers, like many wildlife shooters, this poses a large compromise. Auto white balance may have been improved radically in the past five years, but there were still uh, mixed light situations that stumped the auto white focus in the R5. With this reviewer's multi hue dining room lighting as one example, no more. The R3 calculates its way out of that orange-yellow-green trap with grace and speed. The battery performance is quite good, reminiscent of 1D series expectations. In one instance, we were able to get 16,000 electronic shutter images in one battery charge. But this was taking hundreds at a time for a review of CF Express Type B cards. In more difficult battery draining circumstances, we would expect between 2,000 and 3,000 shots reliably. CF Express throughput is slightly increased. Most cards show a 2 to 6% increase in data flow over a 30 second burst period. Nothing to write home about. Buffer unloads more quickly, allows multiple frames per second setting while on electronic shutter, the lack of which was a frequent complaint for the R5. Added a full-frame zone for autofocus selection. Zone autofocus can now be combined with subject tracking, much like spot focusing can now be combined with tracking. The eye control pupil tracking. This is the new sizzle feature for the camera, and it can be useful for some things. Pupil tracking, called eye control by Canon, senses where you are looking via sensors that are facing the photographer. They see where the shooter's pupils are pointed and will change the autofocus point to that location when a button is pressed. It just takes a couple of quick calibrations and some getting used to. Some report that it requires frequent calibration and still others report it doesn't work well at all with their particular eyes or eyewear. But for most, this is nice to have. We found it useful, especially for multi-subject shots, where we wanted to get shots of different individuals on the fly. This would be very useful taking candids at a wedding, for instance, where the focus point would fly from one subject to another.
Some sports might lend themselves to it as well, although we generally preferred the smart controller for moving the focus points in a general area and then letting eye detect take over those situations. The pupil tracking seemed to respect the spot photographer was looking at for a bit longer before letting eye detect take over for tracking, which was sometimes frustrating during fast action. Over the Christmas break, we looked, we took the camera to a marsh and photographed a group of a dozen tundra swans arrayed on a wide creek at dawn. It worked great for changing compositions with the changing light and focusing on different birds for each. In particular, it was useful when we wanted to do a focus stack of all the birds, allowing us to get an image of each bird individually very quickly, perhaps at twice the speed it would have taken with any other autofocus point selection method. But pupil tracking doesn't work at all if you're using the flippy screen. Of course, as your pupil won't be up to the viewfinder. When getting low to the ground or putting the camera high up above a crowd, the flippy screen lets you get shots you otherwise couldn't achieve. But you're likely going to be using the smart controller to change autofocus points. That isn't a great sacrifice, but it takes some getting used to to swap from one method to the other on the fly. And that complexity is probably the biggest downside to the eye control slash pupil tracking feature. When you have it activated, it can make the viewfinder quite busy. You might have the blue square showing focus area as well as a white square indicating the current eye tracking. And then on top of all of that, a yellow graphic might be flittering around showing where the camera thinks you are looking. As two of these three will be moving in different directions, it can be quite a lot to take in. We wound up using one of the front customizable buttons to turn it on and off so we could surgically use it when it suited, but otherwise not have the wandering eye flying about the viewfinder. Calibration is simple and quick, and you can get a more sturdy calibration by going through multiple iterations, especially using different light conditions and both vertical and horizontal orientations. That said, when going into a very difficult environment, we found that we would often need to uh, recalibrate to get accurate placement. The most difficult circumstances in which to achieve accuracy happened in awkward shooting conditions where the photographer's face couldn't be exactly square to the viewfinder, such as when stretching on tippy toes or quickly rotating the camera to capture something other than simple 90 degrees from level angle. When kit recalibration proved needed, the tracking would often just not quite reach the desired target. To get the shot, we would sometimes deliberately look beyond the actual subject to coax the yellow, cer or yellow icon over the desired target. This sometimes caused an interesting feeling, although uh, we were trying to look indirectly at people as though we were avoiding their eyes. Recalibration is pretty quick. We timed it at about 10 seconds once you know where to jump into the menu. For video, this is generally a better video camera than the R5 if you don't miss 8K shooting. The reality is, as of this writing, that few people are using 8K regularly. Aside from major commercial productions, 8K is used by people wishing to have to give themselves more zooming and panning flexibility in editing or for future proofing, which sounds good until you own a closet full of hard drives. The R3 shoots a beautiful 4K video that downsamples from the whole sensor. That whole sensor isn't nearly as large as the R5, which also gives you downsampled HQ 4K video. 
But in looking at side-by-side -side comparisons, we could not make out any benefits the R5's additional resolution provided in that format. The big difference is that the R3 doesn't require an external recorder to not get stripped up by heat-caused interruptions. The calculation becomes a bit tougher when comparing the R3 to the R5C, Canon's new video-focused redo of the R5. Heat is no longer an issue with the R5C, which includes active cooling. The R5C also throws in the Canon Cinema EOS interface with all the tools and tricks enabled for their Cinema line, where the R3 is left with the more traditional DSLR-born hybrid interface. The R5C allows you to boot into either Cinema EOS interface or the normal EOS interface, depending on the work at hand. The R5C signature feature is the ability to shoot 8K 60p, allowing for both zoom and pan editing in post while exploiting slow motion. A touted benefit of the R3 has been the stacked sensor, improving the rolling shutter effect. This is true, but the R5's rolling shutter was relatively well controlled, especially for a full frame sensor. Unfortunately, the R5C didn't provide any benefit over this. Perhaps the biggest R5 handicap is the arbitrary recording limit when making videos while recording internally. That 30-minute limit is lifted for both the R3 and the R5C. For high bitrate video formats, that arbitrary limit wasn't as much of an annoyance as might be expected, given that the heat limitations of the R5 meant that shooting 8K or 4K HQ for 30 minutes was already an unlikely prospect. But people conducting hours-long interviews or filming documentaries found this maddening as it affected all video formats in the R5. The R5C and the R5 suffer from using a micro HDMI port, fine for occasional use, but a liability for frequent or rough use. None of the other cameras considered in this review limit output to that weak uh, Lilliput format. The upshot for video is that the R3 is far and away better than the 1DX Mark III and almost always better than the R5, not for 8K shooting, obviously. But the R5C complicates this choice. If video is the primary intended use, the R5C does not have practically a heat limit. It is the only one of these cameras with active cooling. It shoots the sharpest 4K video of the lot, but it doesn't have rolling shutter as well as control as the R3, and it suffers from the use of micro HDMI, HDMI port. Because the R5C is larger, heavier, and has ditched in body image stabilization, it isn't as good a stills choice, so hybrid shooters will likely wish to choose from one of the other R cameras. But if you want AK60P video, there is no other choice on the market today. Should I upgrade if I own the 1DX Mark III? In short, yes, if you think 30 frames per second, more megapixels, and significantly improved ergonomics matter enough to cover the greater than $1,000 difference between a new R3 and a used 1DX Mark III. If you shoot low light frequently and you need cross points in your autofocus array, the DSLR could prove better for, uh, for focusing. Mirrorless cameras are good at using phase detection in one axis to determine autofocus, but not in both axes for a lack of cross points that DSLRs use. The R3 will sometimes recognize an object as having been selected, but then it will ooze over to the nearest vertical line, which might be a close point of the background. Then that selected column might move ooze over to the side of the building because it has more contrast. This doesn't happen in most cases, but in rare low light circumstances, it can be craze making. 
Should I upgrade if I own the R5? In short, probably not, but maybe. The extra $3,000 would buy you a camera with about half the resolution. The R3 does beat the R5 significantly in super low light circumstances. Its autofocus capabilities are better, but not demonstrably in most situations. We tested this side by side, though, with the screaming fast Brittany Spaniel running at full tilt towards us. The R5 had a 70% hit rate of having the shots perfectly in focus, with those that were out of focus uh, happening primarily when the dog was within 10 feet. And the autofocus had to make most extreme adjustments to compensate. The R3 missed only one or two out of 50 shots and kept autofocusing even as the dog passed. People need that sort of hit rate, known, known who they are and might have an R3 over an R5. But in most situations, autofocus situations, such as birds in flight that were more than 40 yards away, the cameras performed more equally. This was disappointing as we were hoping the R3 would show a big improvement, especially in keeping focus on distant targets set against high contrast backgrounds. The throwaway images below were an eagle flying away at quite a distance shows the typical movement in which a vertically oriented background grabs the autofocus. This is uh, as apt to happen with the R3 as it is with the R5, unfortunately. We tested this with multiple autofocus settings, which didn't appear to help significantly. The R3 does have 50% more frames per second, which can be a big deal for some users. Buyers are definitely going to want to find good and large CF Express Type B cards for this camera. 30 frames per second is addicting. It has a better battery and better ergonomics and some innovative additional features, particularly the eye control and the smart controller. If you find that the R5's resolution is overkill and you don't crop images much, you may indeed find that the R3 works better for you. If you like to take distant wildlife pictures and you have only a 400 millimeter lens, you'd likely prefer the R5. Essentially, if money were no object, the decision would come down to whether or not you were more reach limited or more light limited in the type of photography you shoot. If light is relatively plentiful and long reach is important, the R5's resolution may be the best benefit. If instead you shoot close in events and low light, the R3 is likely a better choice. The pros and the tricky autofocus selection puzzle, whether they like it or not, professional photographers have to play a little video game called Get the Shot. In it, they pres they're presented with a tiny view screen showing a potential image for which they can get paid if they take a picture at the right moment while balancing four settings to maximize the available light and moving fingers with lightning speed to make sure the most appropriate focus point is the one that will control the camera's autofocus function. It's a lot to think about all at once, especially as most would rather be more worried about anticipating the action and adjusting the compensation or composition to make for a better image. Canon has been working hard in the past five years to fix the need for the lighting, uh, lightning fingers. First, in its 1DX Mark III with the smart controller, a super sensitive nipple that can very quickly and finally adjust the focus point, and now with the R3, which sees where you are looking and automatically gives the photographer the option to have camera, the camera focus there. It's done a pretty good job with both. The biggest problem now for the photographers is deciding which of several methods to use in the moment for moving the focus point. This too many options issue was so great that Canon actually disabled another of its excellent focus point selection methods using the back screen as a controlling touchscreen while looking in the viewfinder. 
people married to that method in the R5 or R6 may be disappointed to see its absence, but it does make sense. The R3 screen is further away from the other controls, making this method inferior to the two added ones, the smart controller and eye control. Different types of photographers operate in communities that have different cultures. Sports photographers and other action-oriented pros pride themselves in the speed with which they can control their hardware to capture subjects, often at various distances to them. These subjects tend to conform to the playing field and repeat similar activities over and over again, reducing the finger challenge somewhat. Wedding photographers try to make the equipment disappear and swim among crowds of celebrants in hopes of capturing the mood of the crowd and tenor of conversations. The Lightning Fingers video game satisfies the sports photographer pretty well, but has always been considered more of a chore for portrait photographers, wedding photographers, and others. Those people are going to like the eye control selection feature, which works great so long as the light environment doesn't change so much during a shoot that it requires recalibration too often. The interface test, there comes a time when a photographer needs to get someone nearby to take a shot with their camera. It can send shivers down the spines of pros, especially those with highly customized gripped bodies with remapped buttons. My wife, who has since become a decent photographer, was so used to my little list of instructions that she'd wave me off saying, yeah, yeah, I know, back button focus and move the focus point, sure, sure. But doing this with the newbie provides one of the best interface tests. This was brought home to me last month when my family visited a tree lighting ceremony with a couple of friends. My buddy Tom, a novice, offered to use the R3 to take a picture of me and my family together. I'd had the R3 for a day and had two versions of back button focus set up, one with the smart controller and the other with the pupil-directed autofocus point selection. As I handed the camera to him, I contemplated what could, I could possibly tell him to let him take uh, this simplest of all shots. Instead of introducing the concept of pupil sensors or even what a smart controller was, or heck, even the idea of selecting an autofocus point, I had to tell him to just fill the frame with us and press one of the buttons first and then take the picture. He did. The autofocus was spot on because all of us were a wall of people at the same distance. And wherever the heck the autofocus point was sitting, well, it worked. Of course, then he took 145 pictures by pressing the button two or three times, waiting for a click that would never come because the camera was set to e-shutter. Foibles of the R3. What follows is a list of mostly minor annoyances experienced with the R3, some of which may be targets for future firmware fixes. The new hot shoe cover is designed to fall off and get lost on day one. Unfortunately, with the new hot shoe capabilities and interface, this is now more of a weather sealing liability than previous hot shoes. At this time, Canon does not sell extra hot shoe covers separately. Our solution to this was a small piece of grip tape fixing the hot shoe cover on. If you own an R3 and are reading this to affirm your purchase decision, stop now and go tape your hot shoe cover. Tomorrow might be too late. We felt that when we changed the autofocus cases to be more sticky, the results didn't provide much in the way of additional stickiness. The smart controller doesn't immediately respond to your fingers on it. You first must use the joystick co uh, component of the smart controller or half press the shutter button before the smart controller sensor starts working. There were times when the autofocus indicated it acquired focus in low light when it clearly did not. 
The specs list a minus 7.5 EV as the new autofocusing limit, but we didn't perceive it to be much better or worse than the R5, which is rated to minus 6 EV. Our perception was that it was willing to make a call as to whether or not the subject focus was acquired down to minus 7.5 EV, but whether it was or was not uh, was a little different from the R5 system. The ability to use the touchscreen to make autofocus point selection has been removed. We didn't miss it because of the addition of the smart controller, but others might. When reviewing images on the back screen, the smart controller is frequently activated by mistake, making it more difficult to view. It would be better to have the to press the smart controller down prior to it operating as an image viewing and panning control. Essentially, Canon should switch these behaviors and have it not automatically activated in image view mode and have it activated initially when used as an autofocus point selection tool. The hot shoe cover is a mess. It doesn't stick on as well as it needs. There appears to be an air gap between the cover and the actual body, but this is just an external flange. We concluded, or sorry, we conducted a water test on the shoe cover and it indeed passed so long as the cover remains unlost. Myth to unbelief. The R3 doesn't improve the performance of the RF 400 2.8 RF 600 millimeter F4 in any fashion other than perhaps driving focus motor a little faster for a longer period with its superior battery, much like the 1DX series does with the EF equivalents. Those RF versions of the big whites do indeed appear to be true copies of the older EF Mark III versions with an inbuilt adapter. The eye control autofocus point selection feature isn't the same gimmick that appeared decades ago in the EOS 3 DSLR. This digital version works and can work well when calibrated. It is true that it won't be your favorite mechanism to do this across all types of photography, but for some types, it was unbeatable. The 1DX Mark III lacks a significant superior feature. There are some minor wins for the DSLR. It has a lower viewfinder latency because it doesn't actually have a digital viewfinder. The 1DX Mark III does genuinely autofocus better with horizontal objects in low contrast situations, but this problem presents rarely. The last one is typical for the Canon faithful. This they, they may believe that because Canon released the R3 with a sensor resolution similar to that of the low-res 1 series, the rumored coming R1 camera will assuredly be a high-resolution monster. Canon might produce a high-resolution camera as it has done before, but to marry one to a gripped body and call it a flagship would be akin to Canon opting to move its headquarters to Miami. It would be pretty unlikely cultural shift because this is what most people don't want means are just because this is what most people want doesn't mean it'll be what Canon does. In four weeks of shooting with the R3 over perhaps 30,000 images, we experienced two lockups, which required battery removal to resolve. This seems similar to a similar phenomenon some R5 shooters experienced occasionally. Some forum dwellers reported similar occasional issues. It was not frequent enough to flag as a significant problem, as it is easily resolvable quickly. In mist or rain, the viewfinder often thinks droplets on the face sensor are actually a face, and it will turn off the back display and turn on the viewfinder. It seems to have been made more sensitive than the R5, or perhaps the reconfigured eyepiece for eye control allows the moisture to collect more quickly. In conclusion, 
Canon has a new flagship camera. Canon finally made a pro camera that ditched all the irrational elements kept for years, primarily so that the male pro photographer could have a camera that emphasized his own manliness. To the degree that it was heavy, loud, and large suggested the camera needed a real pro to handle it. Not only did Canon make a better camera with the R3, which feels better in any gender's hands, but they added in features that this pro market was reluctant to tolerate, like a flippy screen. Canon finally dropped the macho build to maximize usability, and you can feel it. Still today, Canon has been careful to make sure its various national marketing organizations don't call the R3 its new flagship camera. Canon UK even had to take down some language on its website soon after the camera's announcement to placate the existing 1D shooters whose self-perceived masculinity might have been diminished. But this reviewer can tell you, as are all the other reviewers, that the R3 is Canon's real flagship camera. The 1DX Mark III, Canon's last DSLR flagship, is inferior in almost all significant ways. The contender against the R3 remains the R5, which is superior for those who value resolution above the R3's 50% more frames per second. And the R5C, which is unique for its active cooling and capability of producing 8K 60p video. For everyone else, the Admiral's colors have ascended the R3's mast. That resolution difference will also come into play for people considering from among different camera systems. Nikon's and Sony's new flagship bodies are high-resolution beasts. Nikonians will have a good excuse to stick to their brand, and many rational people are going to choose Sony as well. The R3 is a respectable flagship, but it isn't a market show stopper. That said, it well deserves the attention it's getting and is going to sell the bejesus out of whatever's left of Canon's supply chain. So that was an extremely long review on the R3. I do apologize for that. I didn't expect it to eat up this much time in this episode, but I thought it was good to share all of the details with my listeners. That way you don't have to scroll through the long article for yourself. Next up, Optical Limits reviews the Canon EOS R5 16mm f2.8 STM pancake lens. Optical Limits is one of my favorite review sites, and they recently completed their review of the Canon RF 16mm f2.8 STM. First, let's face facts. The Canon RF 16 is the cheapest ever full-frame 16mm that has ever been produced by an original camera maker. Ever. There are going to be some compromises to its performance. There are usually three main uh, contributors to lens design, cost, size and weight, and quality. Each one of these factors affects the other. In the case of the RF 16 2.8, you have a small, light, and cheap 16mm ultra-wide prime. Quality is going to suffer. If any of you have been following my patent application commentary over the years at Canon News, you'll know that I've been very outspoken about Canon's trends on making the image circle smaller on lenses. It isn't an uncommon thing in Canon's patent applications. However, while doing so can reduce the cost and size weight, it does have a pretty dramatic effect on image quality. Optical Limits did quite a thorough review of the RF 16 2.8. While the optical quality did suffer, they do admit it's a huge bang for the buck lens that is hard to pass up. Just don't look too closely at the corners. 
Quote, the Canon RF-16 F2.8 SDM is a lens with many facets. It comes down to where you come from and what you want. For instance, if you own an EOS R3 or an R6, it's a decent ultra-wide prime lens because at 20 megapixels, even a Coke bottle is sharp enough. Well, almost. While on an EOS R5 at 45 megapixels, you don't really want to look at the image corners. It is, of course, also worth noting that this is the cheapest, fast, ultra-wide prime ever released from a genuine manufacturer. Even when ignoring all quality concerns, it's dirt cheap for what it is. If you can't afford the real thing, having a 16mm ultra-wide lens is better than having none at all. They give it a low grade of optical quality, but a resounding 5 out of 5 stars for price and performance. Next up, Canon China teases new companion that came on February was coming on February 24th. Canon China is much more active on social media than in any other regions. Its Weibo account this morning published a teaser, Chinese featuring a large gold number three and writing that states, the new friend you've been waiting for is finally here. See you here in three days. A QR code at the bottom leads to a live event site showing a countdown to February 24th at 7 p.m. local time, seemingly suggesting a product launch. Commenters on Canon's Chinese social media feeds do not appear to have any early references and are using much as English-speaking comment boards tend to do. The open-ended teaser as a bit of a Rorschach test, or Horshack test of personal hopes and desires. An R7 and an RP2 have been speculated, but then so have some pretty crazy ideas like a 5D Mark V. There definitely will not be a 5D Mark V. Canon has already admitted that they are done building DSLR bodies. Next up, a high megapixel camera is coming. This is a CR2 level rumor. A reliable source just whispered, thank you, that Canon is coming out with a new camera. The source said that the camera will be 75 megapixels. This has been a long rumored since the RF mount came out. It's no surprise that Canon is coming out with a high megapixel Canon uh, camera. Canon is pretty proud of the megapixel crown from start of the digital era, and they're not going to let Sony have that crown for long. No other details are known, but if I had to guess, I would suspect it would be based upon the R5. We expect more information to be coming in the near future. Next up, industry news, Panasonic launches the Lumex GH6. The Panasonic GH series has been a video powerhouse for what seems to be, well, decades. uh, Panasonic has built on top of the legacy and released the uh, GH6, which can do 5.7K at 60 frames per second, built-in fan, and more. Basically, a smaller sensor and non-8K version of the R5C. For $21.99, it's bound to be a hot seller. You can pre-order the GH6 at the accompanying link. And this is definitely going to be a popular camera. I'm not going to read the entire press release because it's pretty long, and I got roped into that long article and review on the R3 at the beginning of this episode. But this is going to be huge news. I know my friend Levi Sim has been waiting to see what the Lumex GH6 would offer, and I have a feeling he may pick one of those up, if not for himself, maybe for this work he does at the university. Next up, first leak images, the RF 800mm 5.6L ISUSM and the RF 1200mm F8L ISUSM. These are the first leak pictures of the upcoming RF 800 and the 1200. 
Both of these lenses have been on our roadmap for quite some time. The 1200 is most definitely a normal optic, a monster lens at that, and not a cat dioptric lens. From the image, they're going to be announced on February 24th. Next up, Canon RF 1200mm details leaked, weighs only 0.25 kilograms more than the RF 600mm 4F4L ISUSM. Two days earlier, the press released details of the upcoming RF 1200mm F8L ISUSM leaked, and there are a few pleasant surprises. First among them is that the lens weighs just a bit more than the RF 600mm F4 lens, which is already very light for that focal length. A person Digicam Info believes was the author of the now-defunct Nokashita blog posted the press release detailing the specs. The minimum focus distance is 4.3 meters, also roughly the same as the 600 f4, which means its maximum magnification will be twice that of the smaller lens. Doing the math, this means that a human head would completely fill the frame at minimum focus distance. Not noted on the release are the lens dimensions. For those with a glutton for a focal length, the 1200mm lens does take both the 1.4x and the 2x teleconverters, rendering as much as 2400 f16 equivalent lens. Of course, the air column in front of that lens will chip away at sharpness. Stabilization becomes difficult with these focal lengths at f16. Diffraction effects can rob an image of sharpness and detail. With yesterday's leak of product images and the details from this release, it appears Canon is putting out EF-style optical tubes without the extra RF ring feature on other white L lenses like the 100-500 and the 70-200. Optical stabilization is rated at four stops, one fewer than it had with the RF 600 at four. But that stat had an asterisk affixed to it. It has the standard three IS modes in Canon's most recent lens coatings. With the weight being so similar, as well as the minimum focus distance being almost identical, one might suspect this was an RF 600 f4 dressed up with an attached teleconverter-like group of elements. The 1200 is to have two large fluorite elements, one super UHD element, and a single UHD glass element. While the lens elements are listed and emphasized differently than was done with the release of the 600, a Canon Rumors forum member pointed out that it doesn't eliminate the possibility that the bigger end of this lens could be largely the same as the RF 600 F4. The full release, complete with weasel words and footnotes, is rumored to be coming on Thursday the 24th. Next up, Canon announces the RF 800 and 1200mm lenses. Canon officially announced these two lenses with some eye-watering prices of $17,000 and $20,000, respectively. The lenses can now be pre-ordered at Adorama and b and I'm not going to go through this entire uh, thing here, uh, the press release, because it's fairly lengthy, so I'll let you read it all for yourselves. Next up, diving into the Canon RF-1200 and the 800. Canon News created an article going through the RF 800 and the 1200 lenses. Like many of you, the sticker shock of $17,000 and $20,000 was a surprise to me as well. This article looked into the minimum, uh, the MTS, I'm sorry, and tries to find a good reason for actually spending the extra money. It really comes down to whether or not you have the desire with 400 or 600 millimeter lenses to stack Canon extenders. With the inherent 2 times extender built into the 800 and the 1200 lenses, you have the ability to take that to 1600 and 2400 millimeters focal lengths you cannot achieve using Canon extenders on the 600 and 400 lens, 
unless you use the soon-to-be discontinued Canon EF Super Telephotos from this uh, from the article. Quote, if you have an R3, then these lenses are for you if you are needing to stack extenders using the more convenient RF 400 or 600 millimeter lenses. If you have the EF versions of these lenses, then no, avoid purchasing these lenses. The new lenses are really the only option if you need to have an extreme focal length and wish everything to be native RF mount, as both the 800 and 1200 can go to 16 and 2400, respectively, which the 400 and 600 cannot. This may change dramatically if Kenko comes out with RF extenders. And you can read the entire article uh, in this week's show notes if you would like to check it all out for yourself. All right, that wraps up Canon Rumors. And now we're going to head over to Nikon Rumors to see what they have for us this week. First up, Nikon quietly updated the changelog for the last few Z camera firmware updates. Nikon quietly updated the changelog. Uh, the original Nikon Z9 firmware version 1.11, update Nikon Z firmware version 1.11, the original Z72 firmware 1.31, and the ZFC firmware 1.20. The Z9 firmware update has several new lines added, while the other two updates just gain support for the new Nikkor Z 400mm f2.8 TCVRS mirrorless lens. From a software development point of view, it's a bad idea to add functionality to an already officially released version. Needless to say that users will not have a clue that the release notes were updated. Just a bad practice from Nikon, and I hope they will not do it again. I do not know how far back they went to update the release notes, but the Z6 II camera still doesn't have support for the new 400mm lens. Maybe we will finally see the long-rumored Z6 II, Z7 II firmware updates being officially announced next week at the 2022 CP Plus show, so stay tuned. And with that, I'm going to take a short break, and then I will be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191. And you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at liamphotographypodcast.com. And you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag. Hashtag Liam Photo Podcast. And now back to the show. And we're back. Next up, Velo announced a new EXT NZ autofocus extension tube set for Nikon Z mount lenses. The price is $79.95, and BH Photo currently has it in stock already. Some additional information, this set of autofocus extension tubes for Nikon Z-mount lenses from Velo makes it possible to capture close-up shots without requiring a macro lens, providing a practical solution for macro performance with less expensive non-macro dedicated glass. The set includes a 12 and 20 millimeter tube, which can be used individually or stacked together for greater control over decreasing the minimum focus distance of a lens. Extension tubes do not include any optical elements, so the image quality of the lens is not reduced. Electronic communication between the body and lens is supported, so the convenience of autofocus and auto exposure functions are maintained. In addition, image stabilization is maintained when using enabled lenses and cameras. This makes it easy to capture an image in the moment without wasting time fiddling with camera settings. 
These Velo extension tubes offer lightweight durability with metal mounts that provide additional robustness that will stand up to switching between lenses and other tubes for long-lasting use. Reduces minimum focusing distance of Nikon Z-mount lenses. Tubes can be used individually or combined for greater magnification. They maintain autofocus and auto exposure, maintain image stabilization in lenses and bodies that have it. They're a lightweight design, durable metal lens mount, provide macro capability, and they come in both 12 and 20 millimeter size tubes. So there you have it. If you want a good set of extension tubes for macro, they you'll still where you'll still have autofocus and IBIS, those might be for you. Next up, Nikon France. The Nikkor Z 800mm f6.3 VRS lens will be available for testing in a French store on May 9th. I still have no confirmation for the exact date Nikon will officially release the 800mm f6.3 lens, but Nikon France posted on social media about an event on May 9th in a French store where the 800mm Z lens will be available for testing. So definitely interesting that this store is going to have it available on May 9th, but we don't know anything yet on an official Nikon announcement. Next up, three new Voigtlander lenses for Nikon Z mount on display in Japan. In a presentation in Japan, Cosina displayed three additional Voigtlander lenses for the Nikon Z mount, two full frame based on the Sony versions and one APS-C. The Voigtlander APO Lanthar 50mm F2 ASPH for Z-mount full frame. The Voigtlander APO Lanthar 35mm F2 ASPH for Z-mount full frame. And the Voigtlander Nocton D 23mm F1.2 ASPH for Z-mount, which is an APS-C lens. All lenses will have electronic contacts. The official release date was not announced. The APS-C Z lenses will have a different design from the current Voigtlander X-mount lenses. And there are some additional pictures. Some interesting things happening when first Voigtlander Nocton D35mm was announced for Nikon Z-mount a week ago. Nikon promoted the new lens on their social media channels, which is interesting. This indicates that Nikon was working together with Cosina to develop the new Voigtlander lens for the Z-mount. The lens has full electronic communication with Z cameras, and Nikon is probably getting a kickback from every sale. Nikon also has a history of working together with Cusina. The new Nikkor Z 28-75 F2 lens also seems to be a Tamron lens designed to fit Nikon Z-mount. This was also rumored for quite a while. So far, Tamron and Cusina are the only third-party companies that are working directly with Nikon on new Z glass. Viltrox is already selling autofocus lenses for Nikon Z, and TT Artisans will soon release their first AF lens for the Nikon Z cameras. More third-party lenses for Nikon Z mount can be found at the accompanying article. So interesting, and it looks like Nikon did definitely partner with Casina on these lenses if they're promoting them on the official Nikon social media channels. Next up, the Nikon Nikkor Z 400mm f2.8 TC VRS lens reviewed by Camera Labs. I usually post reviews only in the first few days, weeks after a camera or lens is officially released. I have already mentioned a few video reviews of the Nikon Z 400mm lens for the Z mount, and now we also have the first real review from Camera Labs, which still remains one of my favorite review outlets in this age of clickbait and influencer BS. Here is what Camera Labs had to say. 
Good points, excellent resolution and contrast across the full frame at 400 millimeters. Built-in 1.4 times teleconverter. Very good image quality with built-in 1.4 converter or ZTC2.X teleconverter. Very effective optical image stabilization. Very good close-up performance. Practically no longitudinal color aberration or purple fringing. Only little vignetting and no distortion through lens profile. Uh, very reliable field curvature, reliable AF operation, very nice bokeh, although with the risk of double contours. Weather sealing, multifunction ring, function buttons, focus limiter, nice lens pouch, finally. Now for the bad points. Relatively strong focus breathing, tripod foot is not Arca Swiss compatible, and a high price tag. The Nikkor Z400 lens can be pre-ordered from the following in the U.S. and Canada, Adorama, B&H Photo, Amazon, Paul's Photo, Service Photo, and Camera Canada. In Europe, the Calumet DE, Calumet NL, Photocotch, Part Cameras, and Wex UK. Interesting. Next up, the new Canon RF 800mm f5.6 lens is priced at 17000 what price do we expect for the Nikkor Z800mm 6.3? Nikon did not announce any new products at the CP Plus show in Japan, but we can now guesstimate the price of the Nikkor Z after Canon announced their mirrorless RF800 as priced at $17,000. For example, the Canon RF400 at 2.8 is priced at $12,000, while the Nikkor Z400 2.8 is priced at $14,000. Given the different apertures on the 800mm lenses, f5.6 for Canon versus 6.3 for Nikon, my guess is that the Nikkor Z800 f6.3 will be priced between 17 and 18,000. What is your guess? And you can comment on that article, which you can find in the show notes. Next up, Nikon confirms the Z camera will Z9 camera will get ProRes RAW. After DJI and Kniffany removed the ProRes features from their products. There were some speculation or guesses online that Nikon would do the same. Those rumors were wrong. Why, YM Cinema has a nice article on this topic. Quote, after the cancellation of ProRes RAW features in the DJI Ronin 4D, the Nikon Z9 buyers started to worry that the same would happen to the Z9. Many of the potential buyers have decided to sit and wait with the decision of buying a Z9. Also, many of them are sure that it will happen the same to the Z9 elimination of ProRes RAW feature. And thus, the price of the Z9 will be uh, reduced dramatically, just like the Ronin 4D. They also contacted Nikon directly and got this answer. Quote, thank you for your question. Currently, the Z9 can record ProRes 422HQ. This can be captured in 10-bit 422 video up to 4K UHD 30P. This can be captured in camera currently. The future firmware update will allow for capture of 12-bit RAW video formats. These formats include NRAW, Nikon's original RAW video format, as well as ProRes RAW HQ or high quality. So no, Nikon will not be removing ProRes RAW from the Z9. So if you were worried about that, and that's why you hadn't pulled the trigger on buying one yet, go ahead and buy one with confidence because Nikon says no they are not going to be removing it. Next up, Cosina officially announced their three new Voigtlander lenses for the Nikon Z-mount, the 50 F2, the 35 F2, and the 23 
This is dated from February 24th. Today, Cosina officially announced the previously reported three new Voigtlander lenses for the Nikon Z mount. The release date and pricing are not yet available. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the details for the lenses because I talked about them a minute ago in one of the previous articles. So I'll leave that for you guys to read for yourselves. If you choose so, you can find it in the show notes. And last up from Nikon rumors for this week, the Nikon Nikkor ZMC 105mm f2.8 VRS macro lens is now in stock in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, the last time the lens sold out in a few hours, so if you want one, get one quickly. You can find them in Adorama, B&H Photo, Amazon, Pulse Photo, and Camera, Camera Canada. All right, so that's going to wrap up Nikon rumors, and now we'll head on over to Fuji rumors and see what Patrick has for us this week. First up from Fuji Rumors, Sigma announces interchangeable lenses for the Fujifilm X-mount cameras. This is a press release. Sigma Corporation CEO Katsudo Yamaki is pleased to announce the upcoming launch of interchangeable lenses for the Fujifilm X-mount mirrorless cameras. This edition allows users to enjoy high-performance and high-quality Sigma lenses and native mount on their X-mount system. First of all, three F1.4 primes, the 16, the 30, and the 56 DCDN Contemporary, which are currently available in four mounts, which are Sony E, Canon EFM, Micro Four Thirds, and L mount, will be simultaneously released in X mount, and the lineup will expand in the future. As a lens manufacturer, we will continue striving to meet the expectations of our customers with an extended lineup of lenses and mounts for mirrorless cameras. There is also the 18 to 50 millimeter f2.8 DCDN Contemporary, which is under development and expected to arrive in December of 2022. You can pre-order all of these lenses at B&H Photo, Amazon US, Adorama, and Focus Camera. Main specifications and features, control algorithm, including AF drive and communication speed optimization, has been developed specifically for X-mount interchangeable lenses. In addition to realizing high-speed AF, the lenses also support AFC, which is continuous AF, and in-camera aberration correction. The mount is rubber-sealed to cater for use in a variety of, of, of environments, available on supported cameras only. Mount conversion service is available to convert other mounts of Sigma's 16, 30, and 56 contemporary lenses to the X mount. So if you do have them in, currently in Sony E mount or one of the other mounts, you can have the mount converted by Sigma for a fee. Next up, Sigma joins Fujifilm X mount with the launch of their first three lenses, first look, samples, and pre-orders. Just as Fuji Rumors already told you, the lenses are the Sigma 16, 30, and 56 f1.4 DCDN. And the Sig uh, sadly, this is a little fantastic Sigma APS-C mirrorless lens is not yet included in their starting Sigma X mount offering. Uh, got a little bit lost on that. Okay, down below, you can find pre-order links, first looks, samples, and more. And as I mentioned, the lenses can be pre-ordered at B&H Photo, Amazon US, Adorama, and Focus Camera. Press release, first look samples, and more. You can read the official press release. The official product page for each of the three lenses are linked in this article in the show notes. 
B&H Explora Sigma releases these lenses for Fujifilm X-Mount. And you can watch several YouTube videos on these lenses that are also in this article in the show notes. Now, these are some interesting lenses. I'm not sure. I guess it would be because they already had them on the market and other mounts. But I was a little confused as why they went with these three lenses to start out since they're already made by Fuji. And they're already available except for the 16 millimeter from Voigtlander as well, or Viltrox as well. Next up, the Sigma 18 to 50 2.8 for Fujifilm is currently under development. We have this all covered on our dedicated live blog. What some might have missed is that Sigma also announced they will release the Sigma 18 to 50 f 2.8 later. I quote, Sigma is pleased to announce the upcoming launch of interchangeable lenses for the Fujifilm X-Mount mirrorless cameras. This edition allows users to enjoy high performance and high quality Sigma lenses and native mount for their X system. The first in the mount lenses for Sigma from Sigma are the wide angle 16 millimeter, the contemporary, uh, the standard prime 30 millimeters, and the telephoto 56 millimeters, all in F1.4, which makes a complete system for mirrorless cameras. In addition, the compact, lightweight, high-performance, large-diameter standard zoom lens, the 18-50 f2.8 DC-DN Contemporary, which was released in October of 2021, is currently under development for the X-Mount. The world of X-Mount will be further expanded as time goes on. This is officially announced by Sigma. Uh, so a lot of good news there for Fuji X-Shooters, including myself, if you're interested in Sigma mount lenses. Next up, the Sigma 18-50 2.8 for Fujifilm X coming December of 22 and Prime lenses in April. So it appears those three previously announced lenses will all be released in April. And of course, the 18-50 is expected to be released in December of this year. Next up, in your hands soon, Fujifilm video shows assembly and shipping of the Fujifilm XF23mm F1.4R LMWR. Fuji shared this video that quickly shows how this lens is being assembled, packed, and put in a truck for delivery to customers soon. The final promise, it will be in your hands soon. The lens itself seems to be manufactured in the Fuji's factory in the Philippines. Uh, so that's interesting. Well, that was a rather long wait with several postponements, but hopefully the shortage for this lens is now finally over and Fujifilm was able to produce enough samples to fulfill all pre-orders. You can see the video shared below also on our Instagram, and you can order this lens at B&H Photo, Amazon US, Adorama, Focus Camera, and Moment. So another exciting lens announcement for Fujifilm X-Mount has been released. Next up, flashback, the new course of Fuji X photographer Pete Van Den, Endi, uh, End, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, <laughs> all images taken with X and GFX gear. After the huge success of the last webinar, official Fujifilm X photographer Pete Van Den Edjet has launched a new webinar called Flashback. This time, the webinar, webinar is on how uh, Piet lights and edits some of his favorite flash images, all shot with the extra GFX gear. You can get it now for an early bird price of $14.95 until March 15th. After that, it will cost $24.95. Down below, you can find a quick presentation to the course, and this is a dedicated flashback webinar page where you can find out more about it. Flashback. What do you want to learn? Flash photography, lighting, editing? Why not all three? 
And this 120-minute webinar, Fujifilm X photographer takes you behind the scenes of some of his favorite flash photos shot with a variety of Fujifilm X and GFX cameras. Through a mix of behind-the-scenes videos, lighting setups, and 3D lighting schemes, you'll not only learn how Piet lit each image, but also how he edited them in Lightroom, Photoshop, and plugins to get the final result. Piet will also take you through the lighting gear he uses, which varies from simple hot shoe flashes to more powerful but still affordable portable studio strobes. After taking this webinar, you'll have a bunch of new and exciting lighting and processing skills in your bag of photography techniques ready to apply to your own images. The webinar is held on Monday, March 21st from 9 to 11 p.m. CET. That's 3 p.m. New York time and noon Los Angeles time. Interested but can't make it to the live event? No problem. Every participant also receives a download link to the recording so you can watch it and rewatch it at your heart's content. Early bird tickets are only $14.95 US plus taxes, if any, for this two-hour webinar packed with tips, techniques, and advice. After March 15th, its tickets will be $24.95. And you can watch this introduction video on his official YouTube channel. Uh, for yourself to decide if you want to attend this webinar or not. Next up, new Voigtlander Nocton 23mm f1.2 for Fujifilm X coming soon. Last year, Casino launched the Voigtlander Nocton 35 f1.2X with no autofocus, but with electronic contacts, which allow for transfer of EXIF data and more details at the bottom of this article. Now, Casino will also launch the Voigtlander Nocton 23 F1.2 APS-C lens for Nikon Z and Fujifilm X-mount. Also, in this case, there will be electronic contacts, but no autofocus. It's nice to see that Casino understands us Fujifilm X shooters, or most of us anyways, better than what Sigma does, and did put the effort to design the X-mount version with an aperture ring. I wish the new Sigma X-mount Trinity would have an aperture ring as well. But it's no deal breaker in my eyes. I shot my 27mm 2.8 without aperture ring for a long and with great joy. But I replaced it now with the new XF27 2.8, which has the aperture ring. For me, shooting Fujifilm is not only but also about the experience. This is also the reason why I got the TT Artisan 23mm f1.4. It's the look and feel of it. Attached to my XE3 or XT4, that simply makes me enjoy shooting with it every now and then. And surely the new Voigtlander for Fuji X mount hits the same nerve with a lovely vintage design and the bonus of electronic contacts that make it an appealing option for X shooters. Personally, though, the Voigtlander option is not on my radar because my Fujifilm XE camera is not supported yet. The full list of supported X series cameras can be found at the very bottom of this article. This lens can be pre-ordered from B&H Photo, Amazon US, and Adorama. The TT Artisan 23 f1.4 can be ordered from B&H Photo, Amazon US, Amazon DE, and Pergear. So you can check all that out for yourself. Next up, full list of third-party autofocus lenses for Fujifilm X-Mount updated with Sigma X-Mount and Voigtlander. With the latest Sigma X-Mount releases, it's high time for us to update the list of third-party lenses with autofocus support for the Fujifilm X-Series cameras. We will include also the newly announced Voigtlander Nocton 23, as well as the already available Voigtlander Nocton 35, which are not autofocus lenses, but they have electronic contacts for EXIF data transfer and more. 
Available now for pre-order of the Tamron 18 to 300 at 35 to 63. The Sigma 16, 30, and 56 millimeter 1.4 contemporaries. The Samyang 12 millimeter F 2.0 AF. The Biltrox AF 13 millimeter F 1.4 XF. The Zeiss Tuit 50 millimeter F 2.8 1 to 1 macro. The Zeiss Tuit 32 millimeter F 1.8. The Zeiss Tuit 12 millimeter F 2.8. The Viltrox 56, 23, 33, and 85, 1.4, with the 85 being 1.8, and a Mark II, all with the AF. The Tokina ATX M56, 23, and 33, all F1.4. All of these lenses are available for pre-order of B&H Photo, Amazon US, and Adorama. The Viltrox ones are also available at the Viltrox store. So you can check all that out for yourself. A lot of exciting new lenses coming for the X-Mount. Next up, Sigma Mount Conversion Service turns your Sony E-Mount DCDN into Fujifilm X-Mount lenses. Sigma is creating quite some buzz right now with the official announcement of the first X-Mount lenses and the teaser of more goodness to come in the future. What some might not know is the Sigma also offers a mount conversion service. So... If you already own any of these lenses for other mounts and would now like them for your new Fuji X system, you can get them converted directly by Sigma. Available mount service conversion, uh, conversion service, I'm sorry. This service converts the mount of Sigma lenses to that of a different camera body, allowing photographers to continue using their favorite lenses over the long term, regardless of camera system. Note one, the mount conversion service is different from a normal repair. In order to apply for the service, please contact your nearest authorized Sigma subsidiary or distributor. You can find that information at www.sigma-global.com en world network. Note two, this service is performed exclusively by Sigma. So no third-party company doing this. Sigma will do it for you themselves. I just don't have any information on what they charge for the service. And wrapping up Fuji Rumors for this week is an article that I take a bit of an issue with. So from Tony and Chelsea Norther, Fujifilm's biggest mistake is medium format distraction and lack of fast APS-C zooms to compete with full frame. Now, I'm not sure why Tony said this, but let me give you the breakdown. He claims uh, they don't offer full frame. You have to jump from APS-C to medium format. They need better autofocus. Fujifilm saw YouTube channels comparing their APS-C cameras against full-frame cameras. As a consequence, Fujifilm became too obsessed about sensor size and launched medium format. But Fujifilm launched their medium format system in a time when the whole camera market was going down due to the rise of smartphones. By launching a new mount, they split all their R&D and marketing. Their mounts are not compatible. They should have just stuck with APS-C at this point and focused all their R&D on APS-C system, giving us more X-mount cameras and lenses. Fuji wanted to become a big contender, but they ended up being a niche uh, the Northrop's appreciate. Uh, but to get work done, they pick a full-frame Sony, Canon, or Nikon. He'd shoot Fuji if they'd offer an XF 50 to 100 F 1.8, as he'd get similar results to a full frame 70 to 200 F 2.8. He wants focusing speed of Sony and Canon, background blur, low light capability. All that does not need a bigger sensor, just bigger and faster lenses. Fujifilm misunderstood reviewers and gave us medium format sensors instead of faster APS-C lenses. Instead of making huge lenses for medium format, they should have made huge lenses for APS-C. Now that's 
Tony's two cents. And I have to take issue with that. And the reason why is looking at Fujifilm's X-Lens lineup for zoom lenses. Specifically, he mentioned zoom lenses. Fuji's got the XF 8-16 2.8. They have the 10-24 to F4. They have the XF 16-55 to 2.8. The XF 16-80 to F4. The 18-55 to 2.8 to 4. The 18-135 to 3.5 to 5.6. The one or the 50 to 140 2.8, which everybody tells me is the Fujifilm 70 to 200 2.8. So why he claims they don't have one, that they need the same lens, only in f 1.8 to get the same performance he gets in a 70 to 200 2.8. I don't understand that at all. They also have the eight, uh, the 55 to 200, 35 to 4.8. They've got the 70 to 300, 4.5 they have or four to five six. I'm sorry. They have the XF 100 to 400 F four five to five six, and they also have the XC 16 to 50 F three five to five six, and the XC 50 to 230 F four five to six seven. So there are plenty of zoom lenses. Not all of them are super wide aperture, but quite a few of them are. You have the eight to sixteen. You have the ten to twenty four at F four. That's not bad at all. And then you have another 2.8, another F4, another 2.8 to 4. You have the 3.5 to 5.6, which isn't super wide, but not bad. You have the XF 50 to 140 2.8, which, like I said, is the same focal length as 70 to 200 2.8. So why he claims Fuji doesn't have any lenses that can compete with full frame is just beyond me. Now, look, I'm not trying to be mean. But I do have to agree with some of the Fuji shooters out there on some of the forums I'm on that Tony is strictly a Canon and especially Sony shill. Now, whether or not he's a shill, I don't know. But he does seem to spend a lot of time bashing Fujifilm. And I think that is absolutely wrong. And I'll tell you why. Now, as you know, I recently switched from Canon RF to Fujifilm X mount. I got rid of all my Canon gear. I got all Fuji gear now. Not all of my lenses are made by Fuji, but some of them are. And I have shot with Canon APS-C, Canon full frame, including Canon flagship bodies. I've shot with GFX medium format, and I'm now shooting with Fujifilm X-Series. And I don't see anywhere that Fuji is lacking. In my testing so far, using my two X-T4s and my X-E4, the autofocus seems to be darn close to on par with Canon and Sony. The iDetect autofocus is fantastic. My focus tracking results have been really good. So I'm not sure why he felt he needed to dump on Fujifilm. And I have to say, I do take issue with that. I've tried to get Tony to come on my show numerous times, but seeing as I'm not a world-famous uh YouTube influencer like he is, and I'm not worth millions of dollars like he is, he's too good to come on my show. Uh, but I'll put out this invitation again, Tony, if you'd like to come on my show and explain your, your feelings on Fujifilm X mount, I'd be more than happy to have you on the show anytime you would like to talk about this. And I invite any long-term X film shooters out there, X series shooters out there that want to debate Tony to also come on the show. Dan Bailey, if you're listening, you've been shooting Fujifilm X from the beginning. 
So is Patrick, the owner of Fuji Rumors. If one of you guys would like to come on and debate Fujifilm X and what they're doing with Tony Northrup, I would love to have all of you come on the show and have a friendly debate. I personally think that Tony is completely wrong. I don't feel that Fuji wasted their time with the medium format systems that they came out with in the GFX line. Every camera manufacturer offers two different sensor sizes. Canon does with APS-C and full frame. Nikon does with APS-C and full frame. Sony does with APS-C and full frame. The big difference is Fuji decided to go with APS-C and medium format. And I can tell you as someone who's been shooting for over 30 years, nobody does APS-C better than Fuji, period. I've used Fuji X-Series now. I've had Canon APS-C. I've had Nikon APS-C cameras, and I have had Sony APS-C cameras. And I can tell you without a doubt, not as a fanboy, but as somebody that has used all four major systems in APS-C sensor size, Fuji is the king of APS-C with their X-Mount series. And now, they're also the king of medium format. Now, I have watched Tony's video where he compared the Hasselblad one uh, X1D 50C Mark II against Fuji's GFX cameras. And even Tony admitted that the Fujifilm GFX was much better than the Hasselblad. Just because of the ergonomics, the performance, the software, everything in that review and comparison video of his, he said that the GFX series reigned supreme. So why he's bashing them now in this video, I have no idea. But Tony, as always, I challenge you to come on my show and debate your point. All right, I apologize for my little bit of a rant against Tony Northrup there. Let's head on over to Sony Alpha Rumors and see what they have for us this week. First up, Jason Vong loves the new Tokina 500mm reflex lens. This lens can be pre-ordered at B&H Photo for $399. The new Tokina 500mm reflex lens, Jason Vong tested it and actually likes the lens quite a bit. You can watch his official YouTube video. You can find it in this article in the show notes for this week's episode. Next up, Curiosity Sony Long Pause four months without a new product announcement. Uh, let's see. Last year on October 21st, we got first we got the last Sony announcement, the A7 IV. Today, we officially mark four months of long pause with no new camera and no new lens. This is rather unusual for Sony. By comparison, last year, Sony made two announcements in January, the Sony Alpha 1 and the 35GM. The worldwide chip shortage may lead Sony to make a short break and postpone the announcements, but I am certain that pause will be over soon. Last year, we got the 50mm f1.2 GM lens in March, and 12 months after it would be nice to get the new 85 f1.2 GM. But I guess we'll have to wait and see what Sony does announce next. Next up, competition news. Sigma has tremendous difficulty making a Foveon sensor. Today, Sigma laid out the plan to make a full-frame Foveon sensor, but they admitted they are not even sure if that's a feasible product based on the evaluation results and then make a final decision on whether or not to mass-produce the image sensor. In the past years, I found that 
found some Sony patents, about three-layer sensor, but I wonder if such sensors will ever make it into a full-frame mirrorless camera. Next up, Triple Brighton Star Review, 50mm f095, 55mm f1.8, and 23mm f5.6. Brighton Star seems to be a rebranded version of the Mitocon lenses. You can find these lenses on Amazon US, Amazon DE, and Amazon UK. Mark Adelhef from Sony Alpha Blog reviewed three of them. Brighton Star 50mm f095, quote, This lens is a typical f095 lens that provides super smooth bokeh, decent sharpness wide open, and excellent as of f4 with very good color rendition and very good build quality. The Brighton Star provides very poetic and nice pictures for portraits or for object details with lots of background blur. The key difference with the other F095 lenses is the price. It is two times cheaper than the other F095s while providing very similar performance. The lens has some weaknesses, not circular bokeh balls with aperture closed down, more vignetting and situation than competition and lower resistance to flare. But for $389, it is a bargain. For the 55 F1.8, quote, the Brighton Star 55 1.8 at $116 provides globally very good portraits with very good bokeh balls. Good background blur, very good color rendition. Sharpness could be a bit better wide open, but for $116, it does as good as the Sony 50mm f1.8 while having a better rendering for portraits. And the Brighton Star 23mm f5.6 is $100. He says it's very nice, light and compact pancake lens. Sharpness is very good to excellent on most of the fields, but with only average corners. The color rendition is also very good. The main drawback is the bad resistance to flare. The average corners, the slow aperture of f5.6, if you like small depth of field effect, and of course, no AF. So there's his opinion on those three Brighton Star lenses. Next up, U.S. Commerce Department expects sensor shortage to last until the end of 2022. And Gadget reports, quote, don't expect the worldwide chip shortage to end anytime soon. Bloomberg and the Washington Post note the U.S. Commerce Department has published a semiconductor supply chain report estimating that the global shortage will last until at least the uh, second half of 2022. Quote, we aren't even close to being out of the woods with supply problems, Department Secretary Gina Ramanando said. Many companies are particularly sensitive to the problem as well. The median chip inventory for a client company plunged from 40 days in 2019 to under five days in 2021. Even a relatively short weeks-long disruption overseas could shut down an American factory, the department said. Officials concluded the government couldn't directly end the shortage. Private companies were best positioned to overcome challenges by increasing production, optimizing their designs, and limiting the impact on their supply chains. Next up, Cosina Voigtlander announces the new VME Close Focus Adapter Mark II. Cosina announced this adapter at CP+. Sadly, we got no e-mount lenses, but only a new VME Close Focus Adapter. The improvements from Google Translation, equipped with a feeding mechanism. Feeding amount is 4 meters to 4.3 millimeters. Uh, sorry, 4, 4 millimeters to 4.3 millimeters, and it's 50 grams lighter than the previous edition. Next up, SEPA expects market uh, camera market to shrink further this year, minus 
SEPA announced on the 22nd that the worldwide shipment of digital cameras in 2022 will decrease 6.1% from 2009 to 7.85 million units. It is expected to fall below the previous year's level for the fiscal fifth consecutive year. The shortage of parts such as semiconductors is expected to continue to affect production for 22 years. Compared to the peak of 10 years, it will be about 1 15th. The number of integrated lenses such as compact digital cameras is expected to decrease by 15% to 2.56 million units, and the number of interchangeable lens cameras such as the single lens reflex cameras and mirrorless cameras is expected to decrease by 1.1% to 5.29 million units. Indeed, I told you many times already that Sony had to push forward their product releases. The new ZV-style camera, the new A7R5, and A9 III are all expected to be on market from second half of the year at best. The A7 III, or A9 III might even be on market by early 2023. We'll just have to wait and see. There's just a lot of things that are really messing up the market right now. Next up, competition news. Canon announces their two new telephoto primes that cost nearly $20,000. And I talked about those in an early Canon news article, so I won't bore you with them again. But if you want to see the official video on these lenses from B&H Photo on their YouTube channel, you can find that in this article in the show notes. Next up, Takina released Takina SZX Super Tele 400mm Reflex and 2 times Extender Kit for the E-Mount. Uh, let's see here. So you can order this at B&H and Adorama, it looks like. I don't know if they're actually available yet. Nope, not yet. Uh, but you will be able to order them. So if you're interested in getting that lens in the email, you can get it for $249. I just went over and checked on B&H, and it shows they do currently have them in stock now. Uh, the lens is also available for the Fujifilm X mount as well as Micro Four Thirds. All three mount versions sell for the same $249. So if you want to get that funky lens, you can head on over to B&H to get it. Now, keep in mind, it is a reflex lens, which means it gets its focal length from mirrors inside the lens itself. It's a great lens to use if you want to shoot pictures of the moon or something like that. Not so good if you want to get good pictures of wildlife. So keep that in mind. Next up, the Sony a7R5 and another Z1, ZV-1 similar camera will be announced, launched before the A9 II. We are still in the midst of the worldwide sensor uh, shipment crisis, so timing still is a bit unsure. But from what I gathered up to now, this is what we can expect in 2022. One, a new ZV-1-like styled camera and a new a7R5 are going to be announced before the A9 III. Only if the sensor supply issues permit it will the A93 come as last camera of the year, but it could get pushed back to 2023 if things go bad. I have been told there is room for some surprises, but I don't know what's meant with that. I hope to find out more about this in the near future. Next up, the Sony 70 to 200 millimeter GM2 review at ePhotoZine, quote, a powerful offering. You can pre-order this lens at B&H for $2,798. After their full review, ePhotoZine published their review and they concluded, quote, as cameras have become more and more demanding, needing sharper and sharper optics, so lenses have become better and better. 
There can be no better example than this new Sony lens. It's faster, lighter, more compact, and with higher performance than what was already a really excellent lens. If we add to that the very nature of the 70 to 200 millimeter lens, so very versatile, covering portraits, architecture, flower close-ups, close-up sports, landscapes, animals, and many other possibilities, all in an easy-to-use package. We have a powerful offering indeed. A great lens at a par for the course price and a comfortable editor's choice. And that's not surprising. Uh, the Sony 70 to 200 millimeter F2.8 original is a hugely popular lens. As I've mentioned many times before on this show, 70 to 200 millimeters is the most popular lens bought worldwide, regardless of who it's made by. That is the meat and potatoes lens for the photography world. And it is great to see that Sony was able to come out with a GM Mark II and make significant improvements over what was already a fabulous lens. So there you have it, Sony shooters. Next up, Tamron. All future lenses will have a customization button. Tamron posted a video interview with their engineers about the future development. Now, this is Google translated text, quote, Tamron will continue to listen to the voices of our customers and develop unique lenses that are unique to Tamron. I would like to incorporate customization functions into all models of future lenses, improving optical performance, further maximizing AF speed, improving operability of the zoom ring and focus ring with textures and grip. We would like to make further improvements such as improving the feeling. In particular, Tamron Lens Utility is still a developing technology, so we'd like to hear your voices and requests and add it to new functions. In addition to improving optical performance and AF performance, future models will be equipped with a lens customization function on all models. We are waiting for your requests for lenses and customization functions. As a reminder, Tamron is expected to announce five new lenses this year for 2022 yet. So a lot of exciting news coming from Tamron. And last up for Sony Alpha rumors for this week, Curiosity review of the only Sony camera with RGBE Super CCD sensor. Sony always tries new stuff in their camera history, and you can check out this official YouTube video on this particular camera with this particular sensor. You will find that video in this article in the show notes for today's episode. All right, and that's going to wrap up all the news and rumors for this week. Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group, and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. 
All right, that's going to wrap up episode 228 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing an Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you might be getting your podcast. Also wanted to invite you to stop by the Liam Photography YouTube channel, subscribe to the channel, watch the videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media, hit the little bell icon so you can be notified as new content drops. And once again, I'm calling out. I know he doesn't listen to my show because I'm not world famous like he is. I invite Tony Northrup to come on my show and debate his position about Fuji and their decisions. His claims that they don't have any fast telephoto zoom lenses, which I disagree with. I also invite anybody out there that's listening to this show that shoots Fuji X series, send emails to Tony, pester him to come on my show and defend his position. And anybody out there that shoots Fuji X-Series and has been, especially if you've been shooting it for the full 10 years, the X-Series has been around and even shoots GFX as well. I know Patrick shoots both from Fuji Rumors, as do I. You are also invited to come on the show and debate Tony Northrup. All right, so that's my challenge to my listeners. Hound Tony until he agrees to come on this show and debate Fuji and their camera systems. All right, that's going to wrap up this episode. I will see you all again on Thursday.